Hey, my name's Cameron Willis, and this is a talk I gave for, for the City of Kingston's Heritage Resource Center lecture series on November 21st at City Hall at 12 p.m. called Naturally We Got Hostile, Voices from the Kingston Penitentiary Riot of 1932. Enjoy. For four days in October 1932, during the height of the Great Depression, prisoners at Kingston Penitentiary revolted, protesting conditions in the prison until the guards and militia regained control. The shock of this event led to public calls for prison reform, changes within the prison system, functionally led to the fall of a federal government, the Bennett government, and led eventually to the 1938 Royal Commission on the Penal System of Canada, which is the framework for our modern correctional system. How did this talk come about? Uh, what, what, what reason did I ever have for, um, for wanting to be up here in front of you discussing this matter? Well, the story of the riot has usually been told using only a handful of government document reports and the newspapers. A small number of historical theses, articles, and unpublished works have been written about this event, and though I owe a debt to these earlier historians, they have always been a bit limited by their use of these official published reports, which include things like annual reports and the official government document or report on the disturbance. The Royal Commission to Investigate the Penal System of Canada, or the Archambault Report in 1938, also provided some information, but that report was mostly limited to a few key details. It's really kind of trying to talk about use of violence in the prison, and it's happening six years after the fact. And even more troubling to me is the riot has been relegated to a small part in the biographies of famous individuals, like Red Ryan, Tim Buck, the leader of the Communist Party of Canada, or Agnes McPhail. This has often meant that much of the nuance of the story is lost, or details are incorrect, and more importantly, the prisoners who rioted end up being pushed aside from the history that they themselves made. Now, I work at the Penitentiary Museum, as you know, and I really believe that local museums can provide a surprising amount of new information about pivotal events in our shared heritage. I think especially of the Margaret Angris Research Fellowship at the Museum of Healthcare as a sterling example of this kind of work. I have been lucky enough to consult previously untapped archival materials, including interviews, letters, and manifestos about the 1932 riot at Kingston Penitentiary. This talk will focus then, using those documents, on what the prisoners themselves thought about their incarceration and the causes of the riot, and how staff reacted to this surprising event. I hope today that by exploring the complaints, criticisms, fears, hopes, dreams, and frustrations of the imprisoned and their keepers, the talk will restore their demands and goals and experiences to a central place in understanding this watershed event in Canadian history. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the sources that we're using for this talk. Uh, most of them, as I mentioned, are interviews that the superintendent of penitentiaries, Daniel Mowat Ormond, made with the prisoners. He literally sat down and spoke to prisoners A through Z and all of the guard staff. Uh, this is a lot of material. It has some limitations. Certain types of inmates were not interviewed, which is a big issue. Uh, for instance, indigenous inmates were barely spoken to or had very little to say for a variety of complicated reasons. And the questions are obviously leading. He's trying to find out specific things. So there are certain topics that are basically off limits. It's a very masculine discourse. These prisoners are talking the language of tough guys and of working class men. So it's rooted in a very specific way of looking at masculinity in the early 20th century. 
And they are still official documents, so they're dominated by the interviewer's agenda. And of course, this is a very unequal environment in which the person being interrogated, whether they're a convict or a guard, has much less power and so might hide or not be truthful, which is what happened here. Neither the inmates or the guard staff are being 100% upfront about what had happened during the riot. And that's compounded. Um, yeah, so they're actively fighting against the interview. And one thing before we start, I wanted to make some notes on terminology and words, because words, uh, we have to be accountable to today and to the context of yesterday at the same time. So for instance, I am using the language of convicts and inmates. That's not how we would prefer to refer to prisoners, but that's how they were spoken about in the 1930s. It's how they talked about themselves. And instead of using correctional officers, we'll be using guards, officers, or staff interchangeably, because that is how they were discussed in that time period. And so in talking about the riot, and so in talking about the riot, I'm going to mostly stay away from penology and criminology that has uh, in the past mostly been used to interpret this event. As a historian of sorts, I'm far more interested in how the riot relates to its immediate past as well as the historical context in which the event occurred. I'm not trying to say the riot is like this and it fits into a sociological model. I just want to understand the context in which it happened, how we got to it. So why is this riot important? Well, it occurred at a pivotal moment in Canadian history, the Great Depression. The riot occurred nearly three years into a protracted economic crisis that led to mass unemployment, agricultural crisis, and the stretching of the meager relief apparatus of the Canadian state past the breaking point. The crisis struck those already on the margins and already in precarious employment. Renters were evicted, seasonal and part-time workers lost their jobs, immigrant communities were badly hit as well. But financial ruin devastated hundreds of thousands of people. Economic crisis compounded upon social crisis, the dissolution of families, the great movement of those seeking work, but also the unemployed marches, the hunger strikes, the eviction protests, and the strikes organized against worsening conditions. This is what need be called the politics of chaos as social crisis became political crisis, which encouraged the growth of new ideas, or the return of old ideas with new vigor, from social credit to technocracy to communism. In response to this ferment, draconian responses. We have R.B. Bennett's iron heel of ruthlessness against communism, police violence, new policing technologies, relief camps, all efforts to control the suddenly disobedient bodies of humans made surplus to capitalism and wandering and moving about Canada. And of course, there was the banning of the Communist Party of Canada, whose leaders were sent to Kingston Penitentiary on the crime of armed sedition. The riot at Kingston Penitentiary, therefore, was experienced from the outside as another sign of the crisis. But it took the form of what Rebecca McLennan has called the crisis of imprisonment, a moment during which the nature of and the terms by which prisons operate are under contention, influx, or actively being challenged. The riot forced Saturday Night Magazine, which was normally concerned about debutantes and gold bullion, to ask why are all the prisoners rioting in their November 1932 issue. Social welfare editorialized that prison riots cannot be ended by demanding more of the very procedure which has produced them. Canadian Forum talked about how this has shaken Canada from its complacency and the Canadian magazine called the riot R. Auburn, a call to renounce our complacency. In newspapers and in Parliament, the riot became a scandalous, divisive issue, used to argue the pros and cons of penal reform, especially once the inmate leaders were tried in Kingston in February 1933. 
The penitentiary became, due to the riot, the center of a political and social maelstrom that crossed class and political boundaries. This is perhaps a surprise. The penitentiary from the outside in 1932 gave the appearance of placid solidity. In many ways, the penitentiary remained fundamentally unchanged since it had opened in 1835. Silence was still the rule and hard labor the norm for six to 12 hours a day. Inmates were entitled to a tobacco ration, a letter once a month to family, a family visit every six months, and the occasional Christmas play or holiday entertainment put on by the Salvation Army. Two books could be removed from the library every week, though trading between inmates was strictly forbidden. No newspapers or radios were allowed. Hard labor was the norm, and for many inmates it would involve industrial work or stultifyingly boring maintenance and construction details. From 1920 to 1932, Kingston Penitentiary was dominated by two figures, Superintendent William St. Pierre Hughes, the brother of Sam Hughes, the disgraced Minister of Militia during the First World War, and Warden John Ponsford. Both felt that ensuring the rules and regulations were uniformly and fairly enforced for good or ill was central to the disciplinary and rehabilitation efforts of federal prisons in the 1920s. But the Depression put the penitentiary under tremendous strain. The prison, already overcrowded in late 1929, went from an average of 750 inmates in that year to an average of 950 prisoners three years later in 1932. To accommodate this increase, prison authorities placed beds in the main level corridors of the cell blocks. And you can see a photograph here. It's not from Kingston Pen, but you see the beds outside and opposite of the cells in one of the cell blocks. And then they put wooden dividers in the cell within the prison of isolation, which was the former high security ward. That created sanitary and disciplinary issues as inmates were not fully isolated in their cells from each other, and the newly created cells used a bucket, so that meant that one man had to go to the bathroom in a bucket and the other man used a toilet. Deputy Warden Matthew Walsh felt that this step had moved us back 40 years. Strict economy was enforced by the spring of 1931 so that no new staff could be hired to match the increase in prisoners, the handful of programs were cancelled to save money, and government contracts for inmate labour dried up. So prisoners on the inside were starting to experience it as people on the outside were, as lack of work, idleness, uh, no hope for the future. At the same time, the retrenchment against parole that had begun in the mid-1920s intensified so that half the number of prisoners were paroled in 1932 than five years earlier in 1927. Judges became harsher in their sentencing as well, giving convicted people much longer sentences that added greatly to the penitentiary population. The seeming increase of bank robbers, auto bandits, hold-up men reinforced the sense of civilizational crisis brought on by the Great Depression. Armed robbers were frequently referred to as enemies of society, and the need for protecting property and life from the foolish and young criminals justified their incredibly long sentences. You can actually see an increase in the number of prisoners going to federal prison and a decrease in the provincial prison as people who would normally get a six-month sentence got two or three years. We are sitting on dynamite, was one guard's description of the situation at the penitentiary. Two sparks added to it. The attempted escape in 1931 and the arrival of communist prisoners shortly after that. The first, which happened in August 1931, involved five inmates, O'Brien, Garceau, Mackenzie, who planned an insurrection as part of their effort to storm the front gate of Kingston Penitentiary. They were caught because several other prisoners ratted them out, including a long-termer named McMullen, who had escaped in 1923. And we'll, we'll mention him again as this story goes on. This escaped attempt had one major effect. 
It led the staff assuming, in the words of Keeper James Donahue, that any trouble would be a smokescreen for escape. But for the prisoners, it shifted their focus in the opposite direction. Instead of trying to flee from it, they would change the prison to be their home, to quote a French-speaking prisoner, Joseph Insenge. The communists were the other factor. Perhaps more ink has been spilled on the topic of the communists at KP than on any other subject about this riot. Uh, they even have a play about it. Here's the cover, Eight Men Speak. The uh, mythology was created about the incarceration of the communists. And, uh, well, a lot of effort was made to blame them for the riot, and I, I don't think it's their fault exclusively. In fact, uh, the government said at the time that weak-willed minds would be led astray by communists, and that's what had happened with the prisoners at Kingston Penn. Uh, the communists were certainly more responsible than some accounts give them credit for. When they arrived in late 1931 and early 1932, Tim Buck, Sam Cohen, Sam Carr, Thomas Cassock, and the others added one key element, experience in political underground organizing. Many of the notable features of the riot I'll go into, the generation of specific demands, the commitment to a peaceful demonstration, inmate democracy, the circulation of petitions and documents were shaped by the communists. Tim Buck, leader of the Communist Party of Canada, described the prison as pulsating with new ideas and all the prisoners talking penology this and penology that in the three months before the riot. Now, how was this organizing accomplice? Rarely did the prisoners themselves speak about this in their testimony. I'm sure they wanted to keep their methods as secret as possible. But the details of their communication are fairly clear from memoirs and from officer testimony. Inmates were well aware of the places to exchange notes or kites in inmate slang. The laundry room, when exchanging soiled or damaged clothing, would allow them to hide notes, feeding times, fishing or casting notes between tiers and cells with smuggled twine and wire was common. The use of code words, what the guards called a parley. Feathers, for instance, was slang for cigarette papers. They would wait until the guards were not present to loud whisper a message through the ducts or have it passed along the range. Messages could move through the prison very quickly. To quote one guard, word was passed around the whole wing and cells, relayed from B to D, from E to F, and from G back over to H in half an hour. Certain inmates placed in trustworthy positions, messengers and inmate clerks, often living in the first cell of the range, where other gangs would pass them by, could be an organizer. And often a few men from each department would talk and between each other, getting looks, hand signals, and notes. Some even openly read manifestos and literature at their workbenches and were caught doing so with surprising frequency. And when I say manifesto, I do mean manifestos, and I'll put two of them up here on the slides in a moment. Several officers mentioned they would find communistic propaganda spread throughout the prisons. Two examples are especially notable. One was written by Albert Garceau. Uh, we'll talk more about him as we go on. Who wrote in his manifesto for the reform of the prison system of Canada that it is undeniable that the penal system itself is an important factor in the rate of increase of crime. After long and careful study of the effects of prison life upon an inmate, I am convinced that the only method of reform that can succeed is the one that would enable a man to reform himself. For reform to be effective, it must come from within, and facilitating reform must be the chief goal of the prison. And then there was a second manifesto called Barbarism and Civilization that over three dozen copies were found in the prison, which outlined what the goals of the penitentiary were, what the nature of inmate labor was, and the biological necessity of prisoners to have recreation, and concluded, our penal institutions 
are a colossal failure. This circulation of propaganda had an effect. Several officers described the change in inmate attitudes. Guard H. Robinson noted that they did not seem to be under any discipline and that the prisoners did not obey orders. Adding to this, new leadership took over the penitentiary in early 1932. Warden Ponsford stepped down and a new officer, Gilbert Smith, took over, who was from head office, an inspector of penitentiaries. A new deputy warden and chief keeper were appointed. The deputy warden was named Matthew Walsh and the chief keeper was Norman Archibald. We're going to talk about them a lot, so I thought it was important to mention who they were. What we can reconstruct from the letters and reports and the interviews and transcripts of those after the riot is that tension and anxiety grew in the prison over the summer and fall of 1932. In August 1932, the 200 inmates in the prison of isolation staged a hunger strike over the discovery of maggots in the porridge. Several noisy demonstrations, isolated to a single range or set of cells, occurred throughout October. Finally, a strike in Stoneshed No. 1 on October 13, 1932, brought matters to a head. A 25-year-old officer, Guard William Boucher, was placed in charge. He was inexperienced and probably shouldn't have been left alone, and was widely disliked by the inmates. They felt he was, in fact, overdoing it uh, in order to make them uh, like him or, or fear him. Edward Cotta claimed that Boucher would come along and bother the boys when they are at work. The men rose up over that. The strike was organized by inmates Dion and John Saunders. As it seemed, the minute Saunders got to his bank, they began dropping here and there all over the shop. They just stood by them and did not work, thanks to his signal. Three inmates then explained the situation to the deputy warden, Matthew Walsh, who removed Boucher from the shop, but also removed the three spokesmen and had them put in the hole and paddled without a proper trial. This step merely incensed the other prisoners, one of whom, a repeater and convicted housebreaker from Chatham, Clifford French, said that these three men are no more guilty than I am and I had nothing to do with it, whatever. They stood up to defend the others. The strike on October 13th became a cause celebre in the prison. Many inmates during the investigation mentioned Boucher and the punished spokesman, even if they had never met them or had no idea who they were personally. And the strike appears to have incited the demonstration to come. Over the next few nights between October 13th and the 17th, a date and a time, 3 p.m. on October 17th, was set for the demonstration and the downing of tools and the marshalling of prisoners in the shop dome. That morning, several inmates warned individual officers to watch your hat. But of an organized response, one guard remarked, there was none. When the power was shut off and tools downed in the blacksmith, shoe shop, tailor shop, tin and paint, and laundry, and the men went out from the shops with the perfect intention of not breaking anything, just going out in a body and stating our requests, in the words of Sam Cohen, the riot was on. In the tin and paint and mailbag shops, inmates rushed the doors and, when they found them locked, held the line until they were liberated by other prisoners from the outside. Prisoners assembled in the dome. About half to three quarters of each gang in the industrial shops joined in. Some inmates attempted to reach the prison of isolation, but were driven back by rifle fire from the guards on the towers. Everywhere else in the penitentiary became a struggle between supporters and those unwilling for whatever reason to join the strike. Guard Cecil Smith found his six-person work gang even hesitating for a while. Uh, not sure whether they wanted to go to their cells or join the riot, before finally agreeing to return to their cells, only after seeing other inmates do so first. 
Two men ran off to the dome from the outside masonry gang as it returned to the prison. Seventeen terrified men, afraid of the rioters, took refuge and hid in the print shop. Willard Millick, working in the kitchen, stole the steward's key, armed himself with a butcher knife, and convinced ten men to join him while he cursed and swore and practically went wild and called those who wouldn't join him yellow this and yellow that. He was unable to force his way out, so the kitchen became a scene of bitter argument for the entire day, with the prisoners not participating and the guards on one side and Millick and his men on the other, yelling back and forth. These same arguments played out in the cell block. As men were brought in to be locked up, the men who were sleeping in the corridor all supposedly trustworthy and well-behaved, interfered with the locking up and helped force open the locking mechanisms of men who'd already been put into their cells. Some of them were shouting at the others, don't go in your cells. The whole cell block became bedlam, according to one officer, a little hot discussion, according to one young inmate. In the shop dome, the warden and deputy warden came in to meet with the 500 prisoners assembled there, who were talking and smoking with each other and with the unarmed instructors and guards. Now what I happen next, I want to concentrate on, because it is far more representative, not of other prison riots of the era or later years, but of the protests and sit-ins of unemployed relief seekers and families fighting evictions that were happening across Canada during the Great Depression. One of the interesting things is that the staff and the inmates were both unanimous that the inmates were the ones in control in the cell block at that time, that they did not threaten or harm any officers, and were in fact remarkably orderly, despite the clatter and roar. Indeed, Gord Garden Black and several of the inmates describe how the prisoners actually called to order the crowd and began to choose spokesmen from the floor. Demands were shouted out from the crowd and solidified into a number of key points. The election of spokesmen deserves special attention. Inmate William Lavoie thought there were no self-appointed leaders in particular, but some of them got up and spoke, and we liked them, so they're our leaders. The communist Tomic Kasich described the spokesmen as appointed by the inmates. They were not volunteers. Inmate Parks felt, with a touch of defensive pride, weeks later, that this thing you could not pin on one or two men. There were no real leaders. There were five or six men from each shop as representatives. This aspect of the riot has been ignored or undervalued by later writing on this event, probably because of the, the nature of the documentation, uh, the, using government documents to describe it. For instance, Ormond said to one of the guards, if we give them that, their democracy, what will they want next? There would be no end to it. The fact that the inmates chose their spokespeople and made their demands from the floor is one of the most frequently mentioned aspects of the demonstration in the inmates' own testimony. They may have been temperamental, prideful, difficult people, but the majority of the prisoners nonetheless were willing to let their delegates speak for them during the investigation, demanded their democratic choice be respected, and defended the collective decision-making against the accusation of secret ringleaders. Most importantly, although the word hostage was used to describe the 25 or so officers kept in the dome against their will, they were not harmed or threatened or even restrained. But as in relief office occupations, the authority figures were unharmed except that they would not be allowed to leave until negotiations were concluded. It was very frequent in those kinds of occupations for the relief receivers and the welfare office to just stand in front of the doors and not let the civil servants out. And it's worth pointing out that during the riot, these were negotiations. 
prisoners were lobbing demands back and forth. The warden and deputy warden were trying to convince them to give in after a few demonst- uh, demands were uh, assented to. Once the negotiations broke down, officers willingly congregated in the mailbag room to stick up for each other as they waited for the militia. That had been telephoned at the start of the riot by the warden's clerk, Van Elsten, shortly after the trouble started. The inmates prepared for a siege as the militia arrived by reinforcing the doors and saving water in buckets. About 200 of them, including most of the delegates, eventually followed the warden and his officers upstairs into the mailbag room to continue pressing their demands, even as the military surrounded the shop dome. It was a coordinated effort by the Royal Canadian Horse Artillery and the guard staff outside the dome, which finally retook control of the wing. They used trucks to ram the doors of the shops down. They stormed in, firing overhead, and the majority of inmates there surrendered after their elected leaders were allowed to negotiate a truce on the promise that their demands would be investigated and that no one would be punished, to quote one inmate, until this process was down. The rest of the inmate body were asked if that suited them, and they yelled back, they were satisfied. Garceau and several other inmates made a public promise to take full responsibility should it need to fall on any man's head. These same inmates and other inmates like Sidney Lass, who was an organizer in one of the ranges, were allowed to spread the word in the cell blocks, talk to the men about the sacrifices made today, and calm them down with the full knowledge that an investigation had been promised and that the demands they had made that day would be passed on to Ottawa. Over the next two days, the prison seemed to return to normal, except that the prisoners were now talking and cocky. They had an attitude that they had pulled off something, that they had put over a good job, in the words of guard Lauren Kelly. And inmate Price thought the demonstration showed it could be done, meaning we could take control of the prison. When Superintendent Orman arrived to begin his investigation, he announced his intention to meet only individual inmates and not their elected delegates, which, along with the failure to give the prisoners their exercise and the decision of a group of officers without the permission of their superiors to not feed 40 of the alleged ringleaders, well, that incensed the prisoners. One of them told Orman to his face, you broke your word. You started taking the men up one at a time. You would not have a delegation come up the way the men wanted. Then we started to make a demonstration. By voice vote, so each inmate calling out A or nay, inmates in the prison of isolation, including men who were previously not involved in the riot, voted for a coordinated refusal to participate in the superintendent's investigation. As the first batch of men were taken out for their interviews, three refused and the single one who went was a foreigner who couldn't speak very good English and who was booed and in fact called a scab by several of the inmates as he was taken out of the building. At the same time, an extraordinary conference was being held by the warden on the other side of the prison to ask the opinion of the guards what to do about this growing uh, tension in the prison. This was unprecedented as one of the officers confided to the superintendent, we have never been encouraged to make statements or have thoughts in this way. As the prison of isolation demonstration started and was joined by the other ranges and cell blocks of the prison, Warden Smith ordered it put down by bullets and tear gas. By this point, guard Lauren Kelly concluded things were getting very hot. Now what happened next is a matter of some controversy and dispute, with both groups claiming they were reacting to the other's provocations. G&H range were the first to be targeted by tear gas. The tear gas, however, 
although it was effective in quieting some prisoners and was used very heavy-handedly. They were tossing tear gas bombs like right into the, into the cells. It only angered the inmates further, enraged them, in fact, in the words of one younger prisoner. James Alex, doing eight years for armed robbery, even defended the inmates who started damaging their cells as a form of self-defense. We had to get a club in our hand or something to defend ourselves. Another inmate said, you have his cage like animals. What are we supposed to do? Revolvers, rifles, and shotguns started to be issued out, apparently without explicit authority in some cases. Once shots had been fired, other officers began to join in, hearing by word of mouth that any man whose head we can see is trying to escape should be shot. Shots rang out across the prison yard. Prisoners, angry and terrified, threw mattresses over their bars or actually dug out of their cells using improvised tools into the ducts that run behind the cell blocks. Some guards stood around, unsure of what to do, or others in organized groups fired at the cell blocks. Some of the guards, all nerves and heavily fatigued, moved in small groups without direct orders along the ranges and ducts, firing at point-blank range. Veterans of the Great War, among both the staff and the prison population, described this night as a bit like being in the trenches. Although this was the period during which Tim Buck was famously shot at, which he later claimed was an assassination attempt, many other inmates were hit by stray bullets during the night. William Lavoie, who we heard from earlier, even brought the spent bullets to his interrogation, telling Superintendent Ormond, I'm going to keep them for souvenirs. Well, inmate 1865 Scarbo showed the wounds caused by about 30 shots of buckshot that hit me once in the lip and once on my eye. The shooting and shouting ended long after dark had fallen. That day, the order and discipline of the penitentiary had functionally dissolved. The boundaries between inmates caused by the silent system and their cells and the hierarchy of the staff ceased to function. The authority and command structure of the staff semi-military and described by guard Harry Haunts as vague and by guard Ribbons as strict, ridiculous, and inflexible, essentially collapsed as no effective organization and no effective directions were being given. And the prisoners knew that something had changed that day and that night at the penitentiary. Sam Cohen told the superintendent that the officers lost their heads and did more damage to the prison than we did. And Louis Gallo reflected a week after the riot that we showed we had control of the prison. The prisoners had more control than the officers, to a certain extent. In a moment of the carnivalesque, roles reversed, and the inmates retained far more order and discipline for those few days than their keepers. Many of whom said, I've never seen a thing like this. Hi, I'm Cameron Willis, and I gave this talk on November 21st, 2019 at City Hall as part of the City of Kingston's Heritage Resource Center lecture series with the Penitentiary Museum. And this is a talk entitled, Naturally, We Got Hostile, Voices from the Kingston Penitentiary Riot of 1932. Now, the question of why prisoners riot has vexed prison administrators, legislators, the general public, and criminology and penology students since the inception of those fields. In the case of the 1932 riot at Kingston Penitentiary, the riot's causes and meaning was particularly contested right from the start. The administration and staff of Kingston Penitentiary 
offered their explanations to the superintendent during his investigation. Consensus was that discipline has slacked off bit by bit for years, according to guard Robert Clark. But no one on the staff of Kingston Penitentiary could say when exactly the purported decline started. Was it two years ago? Five years ago? In 1920? In 1912? Long-termers, and prisoners in for very long sentences, were blamed for the riot. And certain inmates, especially McMullen, who we mentioned before, were supposed to have been the brains behind the insurrection, which is not true, but that's what the officers thought. They, they couldn't believe that it wasn't a setup by a few long-running criminals in order to try to escape from the prison. Some of the guards blamed the communists. Others blamed the Jews. These explanations filtered into Orman's official report, the government's explanation, and that of many newspapers, in which communism was blamed for the riot, but it was also used to justify the continuing incarceration of Timbuk and the other men from the Communist Party of Canada. Now, interestingly, this didn't stand with some members of the public. Uh, the Orthodox Patriarch of Toronto, in fact, st stood up and said, it can't be communism. I've seen the conditions in Kingston Pen. They're worse than you're letting on. But an ex-convict and former soldier actually wrote to the superintendent during his investigation, arguing that Mr. General is attempting to shift the blame somewhere. The hole with rats, damp, darkness, filth, where the Canadians are put, I suppose that was all planned in Moscow too? Give the boys what they want, or you never know. It's kind of a veiled threat right there. So the question comes up, we've been hearing about what the prisoners demanded, the democracy they, they had in, in demanding it. What were the things the boys, quote unquote, thought should be granted? What compelled them to risk life and limb to contest the prison authority? Now, the most widespread demands were actually very prosaic and seemingly very small. Tobacco and cigarette papers, newspapers and more letters, entertainment and recreation, school books and changes in the way work was assigned. Many staff and inmates who refused to join could not believe, though, that these men have went to all this trouble to get organized to get a few cigarette papers. And yet, as inmate D. Lloyd testified, the longer one is in here, one loses all perspective and small things assume great proportions. And connected to and emerging from these prosaic demands to ameliorate material conditions were criticisms of staff practices, the nature of punishment, the entire work and discipline system of the prison, and the nature and reason for incarceration itself. Prisoners framed their demands in terms like respect, transparency, fairness, trust, which became collective goals and values that were shared aspirationally by all of the incarcerated at Kingston Penitentiary. The most basic of organizing demands was for cigarette papers. Inmates were issued a ration of tobacco each week, but since 1929, no means of rolling the paper into cigarettes had been provided. Prisoners instead used newspapers, magazines, Bibles, and toilet paper to smoke their tobacco. Smoking papers were thus universally the one demand almost all of the inmates, aside from a handful, agreed with, even the prisoners who didn't take part. Inmate 2764 Thomas Alton, who did not join the riot because there was no use fighting the government, still thought that smoking that toilet paper is a disgrace to the British. Many prisoners cited the health effects of smoking toilet paper, with their tobacco. 2706 Clarence Barker thought, for instance, that it is injurious to the health to consume tobacco in that way. Smoke breaks were suggested or requested repeatedly by many of the prisoners, for the officers as much as the staff, as one young inmate put it. So they're even trying to think of, of broader and better reasons 
for, for some of these demands to be made. Now, recreation was the next big request from these prisoners. They were exercised twice a day in 1932, walking in a circle in the bull ring, which just basically consists of a field they would walk in circles in. Uh, that's weather and time permitting, of course. But this was considered absolutely inadequate by most of the inmates. Prisoner 2202, Gerald Beauclair, thought 20 minutes walking in a circle is inadequate. We have to work at a machine all day. A person should get more exercise and would feel better. William Whitecomb, inmate 1491, wanted more recreation because I'm an athlete, but I have no chance of practicing in here. My body is positively wasting away. Convict Harvard Murray, 2563, a recent arrival to the penitentiary, actually presented a list of demands, including for recreation with games, football, baseball, boxing, board games, and card games, to keep the prisoners occupied. And a list of sports that was so popular that a lot of the prisoners repeated those same or some variation of those kinds of uh, recreation. Entertainments and amusements were connected to this as well. All the more so because many long-term prisoners who are not a big fan of the wild rioters nonetheless told them and remembered when concerts and moving picture shows were put on at Kingston Penitentiary. Inmate H665 Andrew Garfield in the penitentiary since 1921 for a 20-year manslaughter charge and a participant in the 1927 strike and the 32 riot remembered when they cut out moving pictures and concert due to those men getting away, meaning Red Ryan. Sherwood Upton, inmate K22 and a lifer, lamented the lack of concerts, which for some reason were taken away. 2323 William Lewis suggested simple amusements, which would not be a burden on the government. Perhaps an inmate band? It is easy to handle a thing like that. Radio was also an exceedingly popular demand. Long-term man K64 John Bedard, who did not join the rioters, nonetheless supported them in this. I have never heard a radio in my life. I would like to hear the radio. Newspapers, magazines, and books were all considered essential to prisoner life. Us fellows inside do not know what is going on in the outside world. I do not think it would hurt, Tony B. told the superintendent during his interview. 1139, Robert Smith, an indigenous man sentenced in Caledonia for five years for shop breaking, wanted newspapers because otherwise he would be out of touch with things in the world. 2742 Lestuc hated that reading is much too censored in the penitentiary. Prisoners resented how out of date the magazines were, how ripped up or damaged, and wondered why they couldn't subscribe with their own money to new and popular magazines on the outside. Many inmates said that they could get newspapers in through trafficking with guards, but in a very weird approach, they actually employed penological and reform language to suggest that their Smuggling an illicit material was undermining their morality and giving them a distorted idea. And so they were in fact using their own um, breaking of the regulations to, to suggest that they should cancel the, the censoring of magazines. Now, uh, the prisoners talked not just about the privileges they were or couldn't get granted, but they attacked in general the discipline system of the prison. They hated with particular venom the silent system which had been the foundation of penitentiary discipline since 1835 and had been maintained with varying degrees of severity and effectiveness ever since. Prisoners were not allowed to talk unless with official permission and even casual conversation, saying hello to another prisoner was an example they often used, meant you were sure to get a docket. 2374 Charles Lester, serving two years for buggery, asked the superintendent, 
while those repressions of the legitimate desires of humans. Sam Behan, probably the most prominent of the rioters in 1932, wanted the silent system demolished, in his words, because we are not dumb animals. Some inmates, like the communist Thomas Ewan, thought it should be lifted except at night to allow studious men to study, and 1518 William Chard thought talking would be nice at certain periods, as we are in our cells a great deal and we are not able to talk to the men in the opposite cells. All these demands argued for new forms of sociability and inmate community within the penitentiary. The removal of silence, entertainment, athletics, smoking breaks seem innocuous and simply humane, but they would involve radically reshaping the daily operations of the prison. Those inmates the most forceful in pushing for these privileges were often graduates, I use that word facetiously, of the Ontario reformatory system. Roughly 50% of the 900 male prisoners at Kingston Penitentiary had served in some way in a provincial prison. And some were even escapees who were serving a short sentence for escape from a provincial prison. This gave them first-hand knowledge of the relatively more relaxed, quote-unquote, atmosphere of the reformatory. And though the staff felt this meant that they had learned bad habits of indiscipline at the reformatory, the younger inmates especially felt that they had been deprived and that the conditions at Kingston were inhumane and were another example of the lack of consistency and fairness across the penal system of Canada. They didn't understand the difference in a federal and provincial sentence very well. Pride, respect, and self-regard were especially important to the inmates. Their reference to not being dumb animals should really indicate that. The inability to respect themselves indicates a particular vulnerable side of these men, which they would only admit in the privacy of the interview with the superintendent. Many of them felt ashamed and degraded by their crime and their incarceration in equal measure. The inmate haircut, a shaved head left to grow in slightly over the winter, was long justified as a health matter, but was harshly attacked by the prisoners. William Chard, we heard from earlier, felt we look bad enough in this place without having that put upon us too. Military-style haircuts were requested by almost all of the inmates. James Alexander wanted, like many other inmates, a comb and a mirror to satisfy my vanity. Everybody has vanity. And James Regan, a barber inside the prison, as well as before he came in as a civilian, planned out an entire new system for cutting hair to present to the superintendent, a constructive example of what many of these inmates could do when they put their minds to it. The visiting system was also attacked because, as in the words of Isidore Wolfe, an active participant in the riot, when I received these visits from my wife, I could be in more contact with my little boy. I would like to kiss him and shake hands with him. Other inmates expressed similar frustration with how far their people had to travel for a 25-minute visit inside a cage. The rhetoric of being treated like animals emerges here again. Letter writing was also a frustrating experience. The presence of KP stationary on the letters was ugly and immediately signaled they were imprisoned to their family. And only one letter allowed a month and with only two pages meant that they were often frequently unable to communicate at any great depth with their families. Um, they were also frequently frustrated by the fact that no explanation was given for why a letter was censored or held back. If self-respect was one angle of these demands, then respect and a fair deal or square deal from the officers was another. This took the form of everything from anger at language used against them to radical suggestions to limit the powers of the warden to punish. Many inmates resented the abusive language of certain officers. Profanity, 
I do not want to think of them, let alone say them, in the words of 2168 Thomas James, a fraud artist who claimed to be a member of military intelligence, who was also an active member of the rioters. Even more frequent were complaints that certain instructors and officers would ride or nag an inmate and treat you like a dog, in the words of 1720 Charles Cross, one of the major ringleaders of the insurrection. Uh, they often felt that officers would pick on specific inmates for no better reason uh, than the color of their skin or a bad attitude. Something was up. Far more vexing were the reports or dockets. This was actually the single most common complaint after lack of cigarette papers, but was unsurprisingly minimized in the actual official reports uh, for obvious reasons, I think. And indeed, the words petty persecution of the officers were so often repeated that they almost certainly were a slogan chosen to represent a common but diverse grievance amongst almost all of the inmates. They resented both false reports, what they thought were situations where they were singled out unnecessarily or even picked at random from a crowd, and the disproportionate severity of some punishments for use of language and challenging officers. 2264 Clayton Webb summarized these feelings or suspicions well, noting that regardless of whether you are guilty or not, you cannot explain this to the warden. The officer's word is always taken against yours. Now, to the prison officers, this was a natural state of affairs. Their word should have been enough in the um, testimony of guard Jenkins to report an inmate, and many felt that rule breakers were in fact not being punished severely enough. The prisoners found it especially galling that there was an utter lack of transparency. An officer did not have to be present when the reports were read or presented to the inmates, and so many of the prisoners felt that they were being written up on the word of somebody else who didn't have the courage to face them eye to eye. Um, Officers were not felt to be fair dealing with inmates, and fairness and honesty were repeated constantly as aspirational desires by the inmates. Although most prisoners were punished by having a reprimand or losing days of remission or good time, various forms of more serious corporal punishment remained the most feared aspects of the penitentiary. One of the most frequently experienced was being shackled to the cell bars. And it's a photograph of it right here. 1289 Alfred Morton lamented that he stands for a very long time. It is hard on the guys. And Louis Gallo felt it was not fit for any human. Civilized or savage, black or white, to be shackled to the cell bars. The strap was even more feared. The bank robber Leslie Weeks thought the strap didn't do a fellow any good whereas Thomas W. thought it improved him a little, but he'd rather not have gotten it. Inmates who had never experienced or seen the end results of corporal punishment nonetheless advocated for its limitation. Others who approached their punishment with fatalism or acceptance, saying, I figured it's coming to me, nonetheless thought it should only be used on the real rule breakers. Again, the sense of a lack of consistency, fairness, and transparency was directly connected to personal experience. 1985 Kenneth Stover, sentenced to receive lashes as part of an armed robbery sentence, felt that corporal punishment was reserved for serious crimes on the outside, yet the warden has permission to give you paddles whenever he may feel like it. In fact, many of the inmates mentioned a specific incident that happened in the summer of 1932, where... Uh, the inmates didn't like the sermon of the reverend, the Protestant reverend in the chapel, and one of them called out BS. 
And a prisoner was basically picked at random, uh, claimed he was innocent, and many other inmates stepped forward to vouch for him. And that that innocent man, who purportedly said BS to the reverend, was taken off, paddled the next day 20 times, and confined to solitary for 30 days. And this incensed the prisoners because they fundamentally felt that if you were going to punish anybody, it should be someone who deserves it, not a random stander by. And so this led to them collectively making a radical demand, and one that I was super surprised to see come up in this 1932 testimony, the removal of the warden's authority to order corporal punishment. They suggested it should go to a disciplinary board or a judge or a magistrate, but it would no longer be under the warden's charge alone. That's how seriously they took it. There were other unprecedented demands that came up. And again, they're not disconnected from the demands for like radio or baseball. They're connected to it, but challenge directly the traditional order of the prison. Inmates repeatedly demanded that their delegates have a say in the day-to-day -day operation of the prison. Norman Tietzel, who was one of the inmates in charge of the riot in the tin and paint shop, felt such representation should be continued so that the inmates would get fair play. Other prisoners suggested three inmates per shop selected as delegates would make us like lambs and that all American prisons have shop committees. Why shouldn't we have one here? Several prisoners who had done time at Auburn and Sing Sing prisons in New York state noted that they had served in the mutual welfare league there and would lend their services to formalize the delegate system at Kingston. Recreation, welfare, and entertainment leagues or committees were also suggested as ways to run the prison. Parole too came under attack and here we see most clearly how the social and economic crisis of the Depression, communist influence, and the rough equality that was idealized by the prison community came together. Inmates complained about the usual, the lack of parole. But they blamed that lack explicitly on those with money and influences who get out. The poor people have no chance. That was according to inmate 1276 Lauber. The Toronto brokers who were sentenced in 1931 and mostly released by the time of the riot became devil figures of a sort to the rioters. They were men who had bought their way into good positions and early release from the prison. In fact, this desire for fairness and equality was deeply embedded in the repertoire of inmate arguments, and it framed the injustices described above during the riot and investigation. I would say, in fact, it's the most fundamental aspect of how the inmates thought about their own community and about the world of the penitentiary. John Maurice, perhaps, put it best. Every man should have the same opportunities here. Each man should get a fair break, same opportunity, and same chance. Favoritism and partiality towards certain inmates by the officers was also deeply resented. Many inmates accused unsuitable men, that is, men who did not support the rioters, with monopolizing choice jobs in the prison. Now, in the typical prison community of the early 20th century, Influential prisoners like Red Ryan, McMullen, you know, bank robbers, escape artists, were supposed to be given preferential treatment in exchange for keeping other inmates in line and sort of setting the tone of the prison administration. But the riot disrupted this pattern in a really interested way. People like Ryan and McMullen were not in the inner circle of the planners. They did not take part in the riot and, in fact, seemed opposed to it. 2364 Ronald Jeska, a young car thief and robber from Toronto, explicitly supported the riot because he believed it would kick on the four or five men in my shop that have the instructor's ear so that I have a chance here. So he's directly connecting his personal experience of certain inmates monopolizing positions to a broader critique of how the prison should be run.
Now, this anger was also directed against rats and what the prisoners called the spying system. Uh, they identified inmates who spied for favors and served the deputy warden directly as being their greatest enemies and claimed those men did it to get favors in the penitentiary. Now, interestingly, the rats themselves, who were interviewed by the superintendent, returned that sentiment, that venomous dislike. A secret letter from 2707 Jameson, who was one of those spies, to the warden reveals the attitude of some of them. The leaders of this riot are mad dogs, and you know what must be done to mad dogs. The broad critique of the penitentiary extended even further into questions about the purpose of incarceration itself. Orman was repeatedly surprised to be asked by the men he was questioning, is this place supposed to reform us? Willard Millick, we heard from earlier with a butcher knife, claimed, I was under the impression before I came here that this place is for reformation, and I think that is the opinion of society. Alex Mustard felt that a man comes here to be reformed, and instead, because of the conditions of the prison, we want to get revenge when we get out. Several inmates complained that they were not able to pursue their trades or to learn a new skill and demanded more effective vocational training or upgraded more modern workshops. In fact, you see a lot of this. Prisoners who were barbers or carpenters or masons before they come in criticizing the practices of the prison as being backward or inadequate for actually keeping them up to date with modern techniques. Others suggested that the introduction of a wage and the increase of the grant given upon release, despite knowing that it would cost the government, in the words of one of the inmates, would be the only way to give a man a chance, in the words of another young man who was sentenced for armed robbery, afraid he would just have enough money when he got out to buy a gun and get started again. This intervention into the basic nature of the prison extended to repeated requests that guards be given better staff training. In fact, many of the inmates identified the cause of the riot, the, the, the persecution of the officers, due to them not being trained. So they were actually thinking that if only you trained the officers to a higher standard, most of the problems in the penitentiary wouldn't happen. In the words of 1126 William Murrell, a lifer who stayed out of the worst of this riot, felt that if we had officers who knew their business, the men could be taught something instead of the men teaching them. By couching their critiques in the language of then contemporary penal reform, inmates clearly felt they could demonstrate that the riot and its aftermath were not just a violent moment of atavism, but was a political act consistent with Canadian and British values. By appealing to concepts like reformation and experiences in other, more reform-focused prisons, it added authority to their arguments and legitimized and validated their collective action. Many of these values were in part rooted in the hegemonic obligations of the convict code as it existed in the 1930s, staying cool and collected, maintaining respect and dignity, in a very working class, violent masculinities way, not showing weakness, helping others who embodied the code, not informing on other prisoners, and not openly cooperating with the staff were all highly esteemed by many of the criminal prisoners. At the same time, the year or so leading up to the riot seemed to radicalize these obligations and attitudes. So that, for instance, men who would previously not care stood up for the sick and the mentally ill or injured inmates, ones they didn't even know or had no personal relationship to, and attempted to frame and understand their situation on more political, sociological, and organized terms. They also developed a sense of purpose, that this was not just being done for their immediate gratification, but would have longer term and broader implications. 
Uh, the fact that they kept asking for a government investigation is a sure sign of it. Uh, one of the best examples actually comes from a note that was hidden several days after the riot by an inmate placed in solitary confinement named uh, Lorne Sears. And uh, Sears was not a serious criminal. He was in for three years for fraud, but he became one of the inmate spokesmen and delegates and was prominent in the actions of the rioters. He left a note hidden in the wall that wasn't found for about 50 years. He wrote, after two days battle, tear gas and bullets put an end to the riot. But I'm writing this note to give you a slight idea of the riot so that you know how tough it was in those days prior to 1932. So cheer up. It is easy for you who will be doing time when you find this little note. Please let me know when you find it. Of course, no one did until the 60s. But we get a sense of uh, futureness, a sense of um, the way in which the riot is going to create a better world, uh, which is a fascinating way of thinking about it. But it really does fit into a lot of Depression-era protests and demands that immediate material actions will produce broader, historically important successes. So that gets to our conclusion. What were the successes of the riot? Well, most of their material demands were met. The riot led to enormous changes in regulations. The correspondence was expanded. The silent system was lifted in part. Sports were introduced. A wage was introduced. Vocational and education training increased. Radio and games were brought in. And even the procedures for giving reports and punishments on the part of the guards were changed. Better training and retraining of staff was instituted, and a greater focus on social welfare training and new recruits was made. Some of the bigger demands, removal of corporal punishment, inmate committees, rehabilitation measures, took much longer to implement. The riot created a sense of confidence and a sense of shared struggle amongst the inmates. It taught them the value of collective action, which had the effect of encouraging further disturbances, as the pace of change was often not as fast as the inmate wanted. And any successful change reinforced the sense that protest worked, a message carried across Canada by inmates transferred from Kingston Penn to BC Penitentiary or the Penitentiary in Laval or Dorchester or even provincial jails where they might have ended up. They became known, in fact, as media-savvy, politically aware, confident, and clever amongst the prison population of Canada. And that is the legacy they left us. Hey, I'm Cameron Willis. I gave this talk on November 21st at City Hall here in Kingston, Ontario. as part of the City of Kingston's Heritage Resource Centre lecture series. It was called Naturally We Got Hostile, Voices from the Kingston Penitentiary Riot of 1932. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 